we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Welcome back to the studio, Courtney. Hi, it's good to be back in person in our like little soundproof box. Yeah, um, very nice to be back here. Yeah, it's good. It's been a while. It I've, has been a while. We've done mostly months. online. Um, yeah, we've had a couple. A couple. I think, I think we've just person. the last one we we released uh, was at Hepatitis WA. Yeah, yeah, in, in their offices, person. which was good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think prior to that, it was, it, it's been months. Of, yeah. You know, virtual recordings. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So yes, it's nice to be back here. You know, in our little room that we hire. Um, yeah, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Um, yeah. So we've got a pretty legendary guest on today um, yes. that people associated with our school will definitely know of or possibly have worked with. And probably, if you've been in research and in any form of linked data, you probably know at least, or have seen the name yeah. in research. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so Emeritus Professor Darcy Holman is who we're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was kind enough to come to the uni and have a chat with us. Which is uh, so good because yeah. he's obviously an expert in, I would I would say, multiple fields <laughs> he's yeah. an expert in. Um, so, yeah, really glad that we could uh, have a chat with him yeah. today. Yeah. yeah, and I think this is one of his sort of passionate areas mm. of um, work. Um, he's retired now, but um, did a lot of work establishing the link data branch or the data linkage branch, I should say, in Western Australia back in the mid 90s, um, you know, with other people um, and has more recently written about the legality around using confidential, um, you know, records, so individuals health records and that sort of thing. Mm. So although he's retired, he's still very active in yeah. this area. Yeah, it's yeah. A, almost a passion project. <laughs> uh, yeah, as, as you'll hear from our conversation, he, he has done a recent review looking at what the current legal system is around using confidential data for, you know, research purposes. And, he, and, and we'll let him take you through, um, you know, the ins and outs of that mm-hmm. and the, the different bits of legislation and Absolutely. the Commonwealth and state differences, etc. So, yeah, please enjoy. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome... Emeritus Professor Darcy Holman to the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Darcy. Yeah, lovely to be here. Yeah. Um, so you've obviously got a long and celebrated history in, in this area in public health and epidemiology, um, but we're going to be talking about something a bit more specific today. So do you want to give us a bit of kind of relevant background um, about your work history and, and things that might be relevant for today's conversation? Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess it is a bit unusual uh, to be an epidemiologist who also has a law degree. <laughs> Uh, so that might warrant a little bit of uh, explanation yeah. uh, because it's relevant. Uh, yeah, I didn't start uh, in public health with a law degree, <laughs> even though today it wouldn't be surprising because, after all, it is a highly multidisciplinary uh, area, and I think that's mm-hmm. one of public health's great strengths. Mm-hmm. I actually started with a medical degree and then um, got training in epidemiology, um, and my career over over 40 years really took me through both academia but also areas of public administration. 
um, where, for example, in the State Health Department, I was the Director of Epidemiology and then the Assistant Commissioner for Planning. And it was actually in that latter role that uh, I uh, took on responsibility for the legal aspects of the running of the health department. Uh, and in fact, uh, I established the first uh, legal branch in, mm-hmm. in the health department and employed its first lawyers. Mm-hmm. And even though I didn't have a law degree myself at that stage, um, I was fascinated by legal um, matters and the way in which the law could be used not just to protect um, people from health, um, health dangers and harms, but also to facilitate good things uh, uh, happening. And I became particularly interested in law reform uh, during uh, that that period. So later on, when uh, I became the Foundation Professor of Public Health uh, in UWA, uh, I continued that interest and eventually led me in the last decade of my career to actually get a law degree. Um, And so here I am. (laughs) So just just to give people a sense of the timelines there, uh, when were you uh, doing that work at the health department and when did you start as the foundation professor? Okay, I think we could probably divide my uh, 43-year career in the area into three phases. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first uh, 13 years was really getting all my training. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It took a long time, much to my wife's disgust. Um, And then uh, I spent 10 years in senior roles in the state health department uh, where I was uh, in charge of epidemiology, established that branch in the health department and then went on to become the assistant commissioner for planning. And then in the last 20 years was when I moved to the university full time. I always had a connection with it, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, became the, the first professor of public health uh, at UWA. And then there I stayed until I retired. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's a good synopsis. Yeah. And now, so what ended up pushing you to do the law degree? I suppose one of the things was I, I got a bit tired of lawyers telling me what to do. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, I, I, I began to realise uh, as I uh, became uh, responsible for a wider remit uh, in my career, uh, you know, greater seniority brought sort of broader responsibility and so many issues uh, became uh, to have a legal dimension to them. Uh, and uh, being the sort of person I am, I guess uh, I preferred to be in a situation to make up my own mind critically about what was going on rather than to be entirely dependent on uh, the opinions of, of others. Not that I didn't value the opinions of others, but I wanted to be able to make um, independent, critical decisions about what was lawful and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think relevant to this conversation is you were involved in establishing the data linkage branch here in WA, weren't you? Yes. uh, I was one of a number of uh, people who um, could claim to be at the centre of those developments over uh, quite a period of time. And uh, definitely that was a very exciting uh, period in the development of health data and health statistics, Mm -hmm. health information systems in Western Australia. And I would even uh, venture to say that, uh, you know, for a while there we were leading the world in that type of uh, uh, d- development. 
Yeah, okay. And just, just to give people who may not be familiar with linked data and what it actually is, do you want to give us a, a, just a brief summary? Well, the best way to summarise it would be to give you an idea of the impact it had on uh, one of our focuses in this discussion, which is confidentiality and, and privacy. Um, so if we think about the world of health research before the data linkage system, um, I spent a lot of my time as a young epidemiologist poring over paper records that were plastered with people's names. Mm-hmm. And it was always uh, a, a difficult area. It was a grey area of law. Um, and uh, it wasn't without its controversy, uh, but it was essential for us to be able to have access to people's names in order to be able to connect the important events. For example, treatments people had had, diseases they had developed, with what happened to them subsequently in terms of um, their uh, the, the, the length of life, their survival, uh, their future um, uh, hospitalization, these sorts of outcomes were only possible because we were able to get people's names off one set of records and find the same people using their names in another set of records. Mm-hmm. Now, that was nothing new, I might say, because you know John Snow, who many people regard as the principal parent of epidemiology back in the middle of the 19th century when he was fighting cholera epidemiology, Epidemics in, in London, he did exactly the same thing, <laughs> uh, connecting mm. the names of people who lived in uh, uh, the streets of London with what type of water supply they, that they received. Mm-hmm. So this was something that had been around for a, a long time, but it always had its critics and uh, it, it was sometimes difficult to justify uh, from, the point, from the legal point of view. What happened was that when data linkage came along, it completely revolutionised that process of connecting what exposures people had had, what diseases they had, to what subsequent outcomes they experienced. And I can honestly say that after the development of data linkage starting in 1995 in Western Australia, from that point onwards, I never actually saw another patient's name Mm -hmm. during the the rest of my remaining 20 years uh, in in public health. (laughs) It it was the most powerful, effective intervention to preserve privacy that has ever been invented Mm -hmm. because that system created the connections between the records even before you did the research. Mm -hmm. So you never had to use the people's names anymore to make those connections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So basically people could be studied for their characteristics, which might be an exposure, it might be their age or their sex or whatever characteristic you're looking yes. at. Um, and then you could link um, based on that person's identity, which wasn't known to any researchers, you could follow them through all of these data sets. Like the That's right. And it was all done using meaningless numbers that had been assigned to all the records that already had been put there in a way that said, well, if it's this number, that's the same person mm-hmm. as as we find that number on another record. Mm-hmm. But the number itself meant nothing. Yeah. And Western Australia was one of the, the first places to kind of start this data linkage process and, and implement it in health research. How does how do you like even come up with that idea of creating the unique numbers, the meaningless ones and connecting people like that? It just seems so abstract from like or like there's no clear steps on how you get there. It just 
kind of appeared one day. In my mind, that's what it feels like. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, uh, data linkage as a concept that was originally called record linkage um, before the digital age. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that it had been around mm. uh, really since about the 70s. Yeah, okay. Um, and uh, one of uh, the, uh, the the great pioneers of the area was Sir Don Acheson in the UK. He was the chief uh, medical officer for England and Wales, and uh, he caught on to this idea. And as a result of uh, his interest in it, we uh, got what was known as the Oxford Record Linkage System. Mm. Uh, and that was one of the earliest systems in the world to use what was back then very big, clunky computers, mainframe computers, uh, to do what later on we were able to do with much, much smaller and much more powerful computers. Mm. Mm. Yeah, okay, that's a nice bit of history there. I didn't actually yeah. know that. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Many people may know or have heard of uh, Associate Professor Michael Hobbs, mm -hmm. uh, one of the earliest academics uh, in the UWA School of Population and Global Health. And uh, he was a student of uh, Sir Don Acheson. And really, it was Michael who then brought that concept of record linkage back to Australia um, in the late 70s. Mm, okay. Yeah, very interesting. Um, I'm sure some of the people listening will have worked with Michael. Yeah. He's been active until reasonably recently. Yeah, Still, he yeah. was in our cardiovascular yeah. group. Yeah. 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 We have a couple yeah, of meetings I've, every so often. I've certainly... Have to put the PowerPoint yeah. up to brighter. Yeah. No, I've definitely started some of his work in, <laughs> yeah. in the oh, prison space. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there's, just conceptually, there's obviously there's a we can see the benefits of having linked data and what you can do with it. What are the concerns that people have about linked data? Because it's not always been universally... Uh, supported, has it? Uh, it it's, it's interesting that, uh, yes, data linkage systems around the world, uh, I don't think there's a single one that has not at some time gone through a period of difficulty. And uh, I would say those difficulties on the whole are not legal difficulties. Mm. They're actually political difficulties. Mm. And uh, they tend to be very much related to a change in the levels of goodwill and cooperation that are needed to make them work. Um, it's one thing to say it's all legal. It's another thing for people to be comfortable with the enormous power that these systems put in the hands of researchers uh, because it is possible to so much uh, more readily evaluate uh, the effectiveness and fairness of, of the health system are, are across a wide range of, of topics and who controls that process and in particular who controls the release of results coming from that process is inherently a political uh, issue um, and that's probably the major challenge in these systems to, today more so than the legal challenges. Mm -hmm. And are there, do, you, do you find that, the, well, in your experience, have there been concerns from people thinking, taking the view, I don't want my data used because it's my data and I own it and I don't want anyone else looking at it, regardless of whether it's anonymous or not? Yeah, uh, uh, surveys generally show um, that even named data, uh, the majority of the public, when there's a reasonable degree of explanation uh, that precedes the survey question, uh, and you don't just hit them cold uh, with, oh, would you like your health records to be you know, av available uh, with your name on it, you know, to a researcher. If there's some 
further degree of reasonable explanation, the majority of people, when they think about it, will say yes. Uh, once you remove the names, uh, the proportion of people who are happy for anonymous, unnamed information about themselves to be included along with the data from many other people, uh, the vast majority do not have a problem with, with that. Mm. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, that's that's interesting. So we've obviously got the public interest in, you know, um, wanting to solve some of health issues, you know, um, yes. and, and know a bit more about diseases and how we can maybe address them and prevent them and, and fix them. And then you have the private concerns of people about their individual records and how they're treated and handled. That's right. And this is an inevitable um, tension, if you'd like, in uh, all forms of epidemiologic research that does depend on the use of identity, whether it's anonymous identity or uh, or, or named identity, um, it is one of the tensions that is always going to be there. The public interest in the great benefits of research versus the personal interest in not being bothered. In other words, keeping one's privacy. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's an added layer to that in that. Hmm. Taxpayers' money is used to collect and maintain these records and that sort of thing. So arguably there's actually an obligation to make the most of those records. Definitely. And also there is a lot of public money that goes into health research uh, as well. And uh, we certainly have an obligation to ensure that that limited and very important resource of public funding of medical and health research is used as efficiently and effectively as, as possible. And data linkage systems do enable us to um, ap apply those funds to very large, powerful data sets um, that don't have people's names on them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a very important uh, reassurance that can be given to the public about the use of their, their funds, that it is being, they are being used efficiently Mm -hmm. You know, to actually go and collect all that information like we did in the old days, uh, well, quite frankly, it, it wouldn't be possible to do the things that can be done today. Mm. Uh, and it's certainly, even with smaller projects, was much, much more expensive. Mm. Yeah, and I think you're looking at two examples of people who've benefited <laughs> from that because yeah. both of our PhDs have used linked administrative uh, yes. data. Yes. Yes. I think Courtney's status is <laughs> yeah. a bit bigger than mine because mine's just right. a small cohort. But yeah, Imagine going out there and having to collect it all. <laughs> By no, hand, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I did for my picture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. I, thank you for setting it up because I'm glad. Cause, yeah, as Craig said, like my data set goes from 1985 onwards, yes. all of WA. Yeah. It's like 30,000 people yes. from that time. Yeah. There's no way ever that I would be collecting data from 30,000 yes. people during a PhD. So it's, yes. yeah, and you can find some really interesting and novel trends over that time because we've got that data yeah. available mm. to Well, us, I'm so, so pleased that you are therefore able to devote your efforts um, to actually exploring the research questions and analysing the data and writing up great papers and so forth, whereas I have to say that during my own PhD, I spent a lot of time sitting in dark dingy basements of pathology <laughs> departments pulling out old paper records yeah. and trying to extract it all myself. Mm. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I, yeah. I dare say we've got it a bit easier today with computers and oh, you know whatnot. We don't have to yeah. do that, unfortunately. <laughs> Thank goodness. It's good to know some things have been through. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Obviously, there are benefits, there's risks, um, and I feel like the conversation today is going to be around how those risks are managed yes. and the legal frameworks. So uh, I think like the sort of key principles probably start with the Privacy Act and then sort of flow from there, and we're going to talk about a few different things. Do you want to start with a bit of an Yeah, idea? the legal framework for all of this is very important, um, and, and I think that people using the data linkage system, it's it's... It's a great, it's a good thing if they have some basic overall understanding of it. So there's really three important areas of law that, that are relevant. And there's another one that you might think is relevant, but it isn't. <laughs> so that, just to get that last one out of the way, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, com- common law as it relates to property. The mm. law of property, what do you own and what do you don't own? That is irrelevant. Okay. We oh, do not own yeah. our health data, right. uh, which might come <laughs> as a surprise to some people. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, no, there is no ownership of health information in a common law. It is not a property that you can own. Okay. Why is uh, that? Uh, because the, the nature of a proprietary interest, which means sort of ownership, mm-hmm. is that once you are in a situation where you have been wrongly denied access to that piece of property that belongs to you, you have a right to get it back. Mm-hmm. Information, once it's con- conveyed from one party to the other, it's actually oh. just duplicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's right. not a unique thing. Yeah, yeah uh, okay. it, it doesn't. It's not like a chair. You yeah. know, that's my chair. I'm yeah. going to sit on that one. You can't sit on it. It doesn't have the like copyright stamp on it. Or, uh, well, copyright or is something different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Copyright yeah. actually yeah. is is mm. is different. And I've been purposely saying common law because mm. copyright is a, is a, a, a child of legislation ah, and okay. it's quite different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm leaving that out for the moment. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's so so that's the first thing that yeah. uh, information is not property. So mm-hmm. where does all this confidentiality and privacy come from? in terms of the law uh, sources. Well, confidentiality was the first one that came into existence, and that goes back to roughly the the middle of the 19th century. Uh, And it arose from an area of law called equity, which is all concerned with people acting with good faith, good conscience, um, and... uh, fairness, acting Mm. with fairness. Um, And originally confidentiality was really concerned about commercial issues where someone, you know, would wrongly go and use information that had been conveyed to them very sort of like secretively and then make a buck out of it somewhere else. And that was a breach of commercial confidentiality. It wasn't really until the 1980s that that concept of confidentiality was moved over into more personal realms like health records. Mm. The key feature of confidentiality is that 
its focus is not so much on the patient, but rather on the person who receives the information. Let's say we're talking about a, a patient-doctor relationship. Mm -hmm. It's the doctor who is the focus for confidentiality, and it's their duty to preserve it. Mm. So it's a duty that is actually um, imposed on the receiver of in information. Mm. And whether or not they breach confidentiality becomes very much a matter in the eyes of a court, for example, as to whether this is a fair thing. Would a reasonable person in good, co in good conscience actually do this and, mm -hmm. and disclose that information that was given to them under confidential circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that is still alive and, and uh, well and alive uh, today. Mm -hmm. And that's one branch of the law that's very important in all this. Privacy is different. Privacy um, is entirely a beast that arises from legislation. And in fact, uh, privacy, which of course, privacy more generally is a broader concept anyway. Um, it, it, we're talking about informational privacy. The term privacy just generally means a right not to be sort of unduly and unfairly bothered by other people. Um, you know, you, you, you're allowed to be sort of left alone to live your life in sort of calm and peace to, to, to some degree. Part of that is the control over your information, and that's informational uh, privacy. It really sort of came into existence uh, as a, a legal uh, entity starting in the late 70s and really into the 80s. And there was a, a very important report uh, by the OECD um, that uh, recommended the development of privacy legislation uh, the main audience for that report was Western countries. In fact, the, the working party of the OECD was even chaired by Justice uh, Michael Kirby, mm -hmm. a well-known Australian High Court judge. Yeah. And out of that came our Privacy Act mm -hmm. and Privacy Acts around the world. And the Privacy Act is different from confidentiality because it confers rights on the people whose information we're talking about. So the focus is on their rights rather than the duties of the people mm -hmm. who receive the information. Most privacy legislation has three essential principles to it. There's a collection principle where uh, a body collecting information uh, is required to make clear why they're collecting the information. And then there's a prohibition principle, which basically says that the information should then only be used in accordance with the reasons why it was collected or something quite closely related to that. And finally, there's the third principle, which is that of release mechanisms, which are the exceptions to the prohibition aspect. Under what circumstances is it okay for uh, an, an, an organisation collecting uh, information uh, to release it? Fortunately, the Privacy Act, the Commonwealth Privacy Act, um, and uh, the same applies generally to Privacy Acts, has a release mechanism for health research. And that has been there really since the beginning of, of, of the Privacy Act. So that's the second area of important law. And the third one is what's called the statutory duty of confidence. 
this is part of what's called administrative law, which is all about the limits to the powers of the executive arm of government, by which I mean, you know, health departments and things yeah. like that. Um, so what the statutory duty of confidentiality says that if a, if a government department has power to collect some health information into a cancer registry, for example, or into a hospital separation data set, which tells us all about why people went into hospital, then it can only use that information to the extent that the legislation that gave them that power to collect it authorises them to use it. And to go beyond that is actually a breach of confidence that is very much similar to the equitable breach of, of, of confidence that, that, that applies in, in I'm just going to law. interject there just to provide yes. a, a recent example that people may have heard about in the yes. news. So during COVID and the restrictions, yes. we all had to check in at venues. Yes. And the police control those data, but they were only supposed to use it for contact tracing and, and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And apparently it came to light that the police may have used it in other investigations, criminal investigations. Um, yes, well, was, was, yeah. I don't know the details, but yeah. uh, that sounds to me very much like a question of was there a breach of the statutory yeah. duty of confidence? Yep. Um, so with the health department, for example, uh, no doubt in your own studies, you, you're probably making some use of hospital uh, data, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so that data has, well, well, you're probably using the data linkage system, so there's no names on it. Yeah. But let's <laughs> say you, you did have uh, data that had the names on it. It would be legal for the health department to release those name data to you because when you look at the Health Services Act, and uh, the new piece of legislation uh, or renamed piece of legislation that deals with private hospitals, you'll find that there's actually sections in there that say that the, uh, the chief executive of the health department uh, is authorised to release um, the data collected on hospitals uh, for the purposes of research. Mm -hmm. So why does health and medical research have exemptions? In these laws? Well, uh, obviously, the parliament in passing the legislation was um, sufficiently uh, convinced by the arguments put to them that there is a sufficient public interest in the continuation of medical and health research not to allow the privacy legislation to completely stand in its way. Mm. Yeah, there's, I mean, the, the public benefits are many. There's many aspects to them, but obviously in planning health services, um, obviously preventing illness, you know, there's there's so many that you, arguments you can make in, in favour. Whereas I guess things like Facebook that would be influenced by all these acts, you know, you don't really get much of an improvement or benefit in terms no, of health don't think, or things don't like think that. So benefits to Facebook no. count in the public interest. Yeah. No, not a public interest. Well, this is the, the great frontier of uh, yeah. privacy more generally outside of uh, what we're talking about yeah. today, health research, uh, the social media yeah. aspects of, of uh, digital <laughs> privacy, yeah. uh, as it's now called, is, is definitely the... Uh, yeah, the cutting edge of, mm. of this area. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a bit uncontrolled, I would suggest, <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> We're still finding our way, I feel. Yeah. 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 There's a thing called the privacy paradox that's talked about in the, 
in the um, the literature about privacy uh, uh, in recent times, and and it does relate to the social media and and the way in which people still, and particularly younger people, uh, will talk about the value of privacy to them, um, and uh, yet at the same time. Uh, they uh, seem to be not bothered by putting their name and address and telephone <laughs> number and intimate details sometimes uh, yeah. uh, on uh, these social media sites. And so that's called the, the privacy paradigm where mm. there's some confusion about where people are really sitting on all of this the, yeah. this, this issue today. And pe- people who may have a, a, an objection to their, example, um, health data being used for research would then happily give up their records yeah. to the credit card companies or Facebook. I or... know some people who are like completely against my health record, collecting yeah. all their data in terms of that, but then have everything on Facebook and Instagram and all that kind of stuff. Yes. And you can yeah. find them very easily. And it's really interesting that, that two, yeah. there's two different perspectives. Yeah, yeah. Mm. seems inconsistent, it but does. I'm sure yeah. they've got an explanation. I think it's impor- <laughs> important for us to not lose sight of the legal fact mm. that today it is completely legal and possible from a legal standpoint to do research using data with people's names on it. Mm-hmm. There is nothing illegal about it, provided that it has uh, gone through the processes uh, required by the relevant legislation, or, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and there's no reason why it can't be done. Yeah, It's just that the data linkage system means that a lot of the time, not always, but I would suggest 90% or so of the time, we don't actually need to use the names anyway. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is a great step forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I'm not sure if there was any more you wanted to talk about on the, the framework. Um, That's essentially the, the basics of it, those three areas yep. uh, of confidentiality, privacy, and then that statutory duty uh, that applies to government departments that you know, collect registered data. Yeah. Okay. And so with uh, working with health data in particular and, and other types of data, um, it seem, we seem to accept that it's a good idea to use as little identifying information as possible mm-hmm. when we're sharing that information. So essentially a- a- anonymizing the data to the best of our ability. Let's talk about that concept. What, what is data anonymization? And yes, it? well, anonymization uh, is a, a term um, that is sometimes uh, uh, put a, a alongside de-identification. And uh, you will find that... Uh, according to different authoritative sources, you will get very inconsistent definitions of what those two terms mean. It's very confusing. My my own approach to what is meant by anonymization uh, is is an approach that's entirely consistent with that used by the Australian Privacy Commissioner. And he says that anonymization is where um, information is sufficiently de-identified such that the person is no longer reasonably identifiable. And this reasonable term, the reasonably identifiable aspect of it, is very, very important. What it suggests um, in practice is that there is a point where between having people's names plastered on things and going to the complete opposite extreme where 
we theoretically insist that there is absolutely no possibility whatsoever that a person could be identified from their data. Somewhere between those two extremes, there is a comfortable point of reasonableness where we say that for legal and now practical purposes, the data are no longer identified and therefore are anonymous. Now, where that point is, is somewhat a matter of judgment, as you would imagine. Having recently reviewed um, where the law in this area is up to, um, I was uh, rather taken by the way in which the principles to be applied in determining when anonymization has been achieved have not really changed in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. So what are the, the principles? Well, what we it's been called the moderate steps test. And it says basically that something is not a data or information is not anonymous if either a person's identity is apparent right in front of you (laughs) from the data or if you only need to take moderate steps to be able to work out who it is. And there are many examples, uh, for example, uh, given by the Privacy Commissioner of what would constitute uh, moderate steps and what would go beyond that. So, for example, being able to link um, a a person's telephone number to the white pages and get their name from that uh, under some circumstances would be considered to be no more than moderate moderate steps and therefore just that telephone number identifies who who they are. Uh, A person's face and more recently according to the Privacy Commissioner and I can understand uh, the rationale for this, a a algorithm uh, that has been used to create what's called a facial print which is just a string of numbers that mathematically summarise the shape of a person's and face, you know, the dimensions of your nose and your eyes and where they're all positioned, this type of thing, is turned into a string of numbers. Even that is considered to identify someone. So anonymization doesn't just mean removal of the name. It means removal of sufficient information such that we will not know the name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, however, uh, if you have to go somewhat beyond those types of relatively straightforward processes to work out who is who, then that's where we cross the threshold and it becomes anonymous. Where that threshold is placed is also highly context-specific. So if information is put out there in the public domain, um, the requirements uh, for something reaching a level of anonymization are going to be more stringent than if information, which has had names removed, uh, is given to a group of researchers who work under very strict um, uh, professional codes of practice. They They are subject to sanctions if they do anything wrong. They're working in a secure environment. You know, there's a lot of things there that add extra degrees of comfort about the reasonableness of the anonymization process. 
and therefore a different standard is applicable there than it would be as if the data were just thrown out there on the internet and available to anyone. Mm. Okay. So so really the answer is it depends. <laughs> Particularly the context uh, of the release of the data and whether it's released to researchers who uh, are following professional codes subject to sanctions mm. uh, versus being put out there on the, the internet. Okay. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, it'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you, and now back to the show. Well, I think that's a really good segue into having a chat about um, you, you've recently updated the, the initial review that you did back in 2012, I think, um, that's right. on this issue. Yes. And there's been a few things that have happened since 2012. Um, one of them in particular was a case around uh, Medicare and PBS data being released publicly, a 10% yes. sample, I think it was. Um, yes. Yes. And I, and I think you've just re- recently written quite extensively about that and the effect that that has had on, I guess, the legal uh, framework um, because we haven't had a lot of legal guidance really other than yes. legislation up until now. Yes. But there's been a number of um, tribunal kind of decisions around that, I believe. Yes. So um, obviously it was a very unfortunate event. Uh, uh, but uh, as you say, Craig, these um, uh, events do provide um, an opportunity to clarify where the law is up to in, in, in the area. And uh, this particular uh, incident was uh, uh, especially germane to this question of the threshold for anonymization. So what happened was back in 2016, uh, the Commonwealth Health Department at the time decided that it would put on, um, on the internet and may make available publicly a 10% sample of linked um, medical benefits and pharmaceutical benefits data. Uh, so you know, when you go to see your GP uh, or any medical professional and some other health professionals, um, you, you uh, are supported there by Medicare and uh, the, the, uh, the health professional res- will receive um, sometimes all, if it's bulk billing or at least part of, of their remuneration for the service they've given you, uh, f- f- according to the medical, medical benefits scheme. And every time a claim goes in to Medicare uh, through that process, it creates a, a record that is kept by the uh, Commonwealth Health Department. Uh, similarly, when we fill prescriptions uh, that the doctor has given us, um, we uh, get that subsidised by the Commonwealth Government and that creates a record about that prescription that we have had uh, filled. So those data um, were put out on the, the internet for the purposes of research. Um, the department believed it had anonymised the data because it had removed the names um, and it did have however, some numbers associated with each uh, uh, record. Um, both There were numbers associated with patients and there were numbers associated with the doctors for the medical benefits uh, information. Those numbers had been scrambled 
um, using a particular um, algorithm, a computer program, um, starting with a, a random pseudo-random number generator, and you know there was a procedure for making the number quite different to what the original number was. So all of these data went out on the web and uh, it was welcomed by health researchers and even was welcomed by uh, the uh, consumer advocacy uh, interests in uh, Australia, like the Health Consumers Council. You know, they, they believed that this was a, a positive step forward. It would facilitate a lot of research on important questions um, that the public you know, would want our health system to, to know about. Then what happened was there was a cryptography group at the University of Melbourne um, who managed to, through their significant skills uh, in, in this area of cryptography, they managed to unscramble the ID numbers and turn them back into the original numbers. Now, this resulted, and they, they informed the Australian Bureau of Statistics they had done this and in turn the Bureau informed the Health Department and immediately all of the information was removed from uh, the internet. However, before it was removed, there were over 1,500 downloads of, of the information. The Privacy Commissioner got involved the very next day <laughs> and undertook a, uh, a, a review uh, to determine whether the principles of the Commonwealth Privacy Act had been uh, breached as a result of all of this. The conclusions of that uh, review by the Privacy Commission are very interesting because the Privacy Commissioner found that privacy had been breached in terms of uh, the privacy of the doctors, but not the patients. And this was because of one key difference between the way that the numbers were produced for doctors versus the patients. In the case of the doctors, the number that had been scrambled was actually their real ID number that appeared on all sorts of other uh, records in the system. Uh, for example, a pharmacist would see that ID number when they filled a prescription. Uh, people who, uh, laboratories, pathology laboratories doing laboratory tests would see the doctor's ID number. So that ID number was available um, elsewhere in, in the system. The patient number was not a number, and I mean the original unscrambled number before the algorithm to scramble it was applied, was not their Medicare number. Mm -hmm. it, it was uh, just a, a, a unique number that was generated internally within the health department that matched one-to-one -to, -one to the Medicare numbers, but wasn't the Medicare number. And no one else outside of the health department had access to those numbers and their connection to Medicare numbers. Mm -hmm. And so the Privacy Commissioner said, well, it only takes moderate steps to work out who the doctors are, because all you have to do is be a pharmacist or somehow come in contact with this list of the doctor's ID numbers, which are out there in the community. Um, but it's more than moderate steps for the patients because those numbers aren't out there in the community and their connection to the Medicare number. Mm -hmm. So again, it just gives us that idea that there is a point at which 
it, it is no longer reasonable to say that, well, a person applying a certain amount of effort w- would be able to readily work out who's who in, in that data set. So why, in hindsight, it seems uh, pretty easy to say that maybe they should have just released that originally to researchers. What was their original reason for putting it out in the public domain? I can't answer that question. Uh, I'm surprised. No, no. (laughs) uh, uh, I mean. It's not something I would have ever have done. Yeah. yeah no, it no. seems, it, yeah, uh, in hindsight, no, no, it seems a bit silly. Yeah, but, yeah. I, I would have to say that my professional opinion is that that was a very unwise thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's certainly not something that I would have ever supported. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, when I was involved in leading the, the West Australian data linkage system here, here uh, I would never have entertained doing something like that. No. Mm-hmm. And so what what are the policy issues or the I guess the concerns for the data not being anonymized properly like what what does that actually matter in this case uh, I think what what does matter uh, is we we have to be careful um, that we don't overstep what the law requires um, all of these systems um, do impose a burden on society in the sense that they stand in the way of uh, research being done readily. Um, and if we over-interpret what the law requires, it does actually have a cost to the system. We get less research done for the same investment of um, important research dollars, um, and we don't generate knowledge that is going to save lives, improve um, health um, as readily as, as as we would have. So there is a cost, and there is a legal principle that's really quite germane here, and that is particularly in regard to government administration, it is legally sound to always go no further than what the law requires. The courts over centuries now have been quite consistent in um, saying that, well, people should be allowed to just get on with their roles in society. You know, it's called business efficacy in legal terms. Um, And we will even interpret legislation and common law principles in a way that enables people who have all sorts of roles in society to fulfill their roles in a way that is useful to to everyone. So the moment we start over-interpreting, for example, privacy requirements, we're we're going beyond that very sound legal principle and imposing on the system a burden that actually comes with a cost that is unnecessary. And so is, is it in the Privacy Acts that anonymization is a factor in making, for example, MBS data, data available? The, the, the point is that once information is anonymized, the Privacy Acting Act no longer has any okay. jurisdiction. Okay. It, it only applies when the information is 
personal information. Okay. And the moment we reach that threshold where it becomes anonymous, the Privacy Act doesn't apply, nor does the, the uh, equitable duty of confidentiality, nor does the statutory duty of confidentiality. None of the legal principles are any longer relevant once we cross that threshold of anonymization. So okay. this is the great value mm. that came about from data linkage because as long as we were crossing that threshold of anonymization, and it's completely rational, and I think most people out there would agree it's completely mm. rational, we are no longer concerned mm. with confidentiality and privacy. So that's why the question of anonymization is so important. It is absolutely yeah. crucial. Yeah, And does that... Does that rule of law come from the legislation or does it come from the way the courts have interpreted the law? Or It comes from the, the way in which there has been judicial and administrative interpretation of, of the law. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I say administrative interpretation, mm -hmm. by that I mean, for example, privacy commissioner determinations. Mm -hmm. um, the judicial interpretation has uh, uh, come mostly from uh, tribunals, uh, like you know, state administrative tribunals, and these are judicial levels in the in the system. They're, but they are sort of at the lower levels; they're like the lower courts. Mm -hmm. um, the superior courts have had scant attention to these matters. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I guess most of them get resolved before having to resort to a judicial review is that right that that's right i yeah. mean i mean there is surprisingly little um case law on the area because there have been some little problems uh, <laughs> so i suppose it's a good thing but it does mean that you know we are hungry for these uh, legal interpretations and when they do occur they're obviously very important and mm -hmm. extremely helpful yeah okay um so as part of the developments since 2012 that you kind of uncovered, there, there's actually been an act um, brought in this year, I believe, the Data yes. Act, which I'm not, I'm not sure what data is an acronym for. Yes. Uh, well, it's the Data Availability and Transparency Act mm -hmm. of the Commonwealth 2022. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think uh, originally people were calling it the data, which is a very confusing <laughs> <laughs> acronym for an act in, in an area of data availability. Yeah. Uh, so I noticed that uh, now um, uh, that's changed and uh, we refer to it as the DAT Act. Okay. The that DAT Act. Sense. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so DAT Act. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a tongue Sli twister. Slightly but, better than but, the data. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, and, and what does this act cover and, you know, why do we need it? Yeah, well, the first thing to say is that it is entirely a Commonwealth piece of, of legislation. Um, and, and perhaps I need to just rewind uh, a, a little bit to, to explain something that uh, we haven't covered, mm -hmm. and that is the difference between this jurisdiction of Commonwealth legislation mm -hmm. and state legislation. Um so when we were talking about that uh, fateful release of uh, the uh, the pharmaceutical and medical uh, data, that was Commonwealth information held by the Commonwealth Health Department, the Australian Department of Health, and of course the Commonwealth Privacy Act was relevant. When we're talking about state uh, 
health information that's held by state health departments, typically things like hospital uh, information, uh, uh, death information, cancer registries, birth defects, uh, a range of things like that. Um, that will not come under the Commonwealth Privacy Act. The majority of the states have state privacy acts, and they are the relevant legislation. Mm -hmm. In Western Australia and South Australia, we do not have, at this point in time, state privacy legislation. So in terms of uh, information held by our state health department, the relevant law is the statutory duty of confidentiality. Mm -hmm. There is no privacy legislation that actually covers uh, uh, that. So that was just to you know, clarify what's Commonwealth and what's state yeah. and the different sort of laws that pertain to each. Now, in this case, with the DAT Act, it's it's definitely uh, applies to Commonwealth data, not state-based health information. Uh, and it's not just health information. It actually, this act uh, applies to all information held by the Commonwealth Government right across uh, the board. So a very significant piece mm. of legislation in, mm. in a way. What it does is that it creates a new uh, way of accessing Commonwealth information, including health information, for the purposes of um, evaluation of government programs and policies, for the purpose of assisting the government in service delivery and for the purposes of conducting research, including health research. It's probably important to explain that this, uh, this act uh, uh, does not replace any of the existing legal frameworks, nor does it make them uh, no longer uh, uh, applicable. So, for example, um, back in... 2007 to 2012, uh, the West Australian data linkage system was receiving Commonwealth health information, the medical and the pharmaceutical, and in that case also nursing home information, from the Commonwealth Health Department. And that was all possible because the relevant bits of legislation at Commonwealth level do give the Commonwealth Health Department the power to release the information when the minister or the minister's delegate decides it's in the public interest to do so. And so that legal mechanism was used back in, 19, in 2007 to 2012 to, to join up Western Australia's um, medical and pharmaceutical data with our hospital and, and, and death data back then. That process could still happen today. So the DAT Act doesn't stop that the potential for that uh, process. I think it would be fair to say, however, that uh, because there's discretion in decision-making by the, the, the minister, the Australian Minister for Health and the, the Secretary of the, the Australian Department of Health in, in these matters, that they would be unlikely now, in my opinion, to release their health data outside of this new system. Mm -hmm. Well, what is the new system? Well, basically, it makes it possible for um, researchers and government departments to get access to Commonwealth information for the purposes that I've already outlined. But it does so through a, a, a really very elaborate scheme. And much of the legislation 
sets out all the components of this scheme and how they work together and the many uh, different criteria that, and principles that have to be met by the users of the scheme, the participants in the scheme, for it all to go ahead in a, in a legal uh, way. Now, the scheme has three principal entities that it deals with. There are the data custodians, such as, of interest to us, the Commonwealth Department of Health, the Australian Department of Health. There are data users, which might be people such as yourselves who are researchers in universities. And there is also a third entity of service providers who are specialised people who, for example, could take named data from the Commonwealth departments and create linkage keys so that they can then process the information essentially the way we have done with our data linkage system so the end user only gets anonymous So it's almost an Australian-wide data linkage branch. Uh, it, it, it's basically a data linkage yeah. uh, uh, system, yeah. but in the context of a, a very elaborately designed um, process with lots and lots of um, hurdles and checks and um, conditions that, mm -hmm. that that have to have to be met. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's basically permitting more parties to be an intermediary and potential end user of Commonwealth data. Is that right? Uh, it it's meant to facilitate and and remove um, ambiguity where ambiguity was previously present. Mm. That it is okay. Uh, when it's in the public interest to do so, when all of these quite stringent criteria are met, it's okay for these Commonwealth, valuable Commonwealth-held information systems to be used for the benefit of the Australian public for mm -hmm. research purposes. Yeah. And, of course, it's not just health. We're talking about across yeah. a very wide range of areas. I'm sure financial it, it could be environmental yeah. uh, concerns. It, it, it could be climate issues. It could be anything. Yeah. It seems like from reading some of the provisions of the Act, in broad brushstrokes, they're basically saying if you're, if you have the relevant skills and trustworthiness mm. and expertise, then we'll and you can meet these criteria, we'll allow you to to be a part of this system essentially. Yes, uh, so th there is a key uh, official who has been appointed to um, oversee the administration of the system. This is the new National uh, Data Commissioner. Um, and uh, this is all very new, so it's only just started. Uh, the, the point it's up to at the moment is the National Data Commissioner is inviting relevant uh, entities, such as the University of Western Australia, for mm -hmm. example, to come forward to, be, uh, to prove themselves um, to be able to be accredited as an accredited user. So it's not that anyone can just come forward and say, I want to be a user. To be a, a user in this scheme, you must become accredited yep. uh, by the commissioner. And there is a quite a detailed and elaborate process that UWA will yep. have to go through and probably is already going through mm -hmm. uh, to prepare its case for accreditation. Mm -hmm. Because I've had a bit of experience using the Australian Bureau of Statistics microdata. Okay. And just sort of harking back to a, 
a comment you made earlier, they've had a bit of a change in policy or a change in the way they frame their decision-making in that if if there's no good reason not to make the data available, then make it available. Yes. Rather than saying you've got to make a case for making it available, you've got to basically make a case. Uh, sorry. I'm, yeah. Yeah, the burden of proof is sort yeah, of reversed. It's reversed. Uh, yeah. Um, and I, I, yeah, I feel like this scheme might be doing something similar to that. Yeah, I, I think um, while I have you know some uh, concerns about just how elaborate the scheme is, overall I'm heartened uh, that uh, it does sort of overall represent a bit of a, a sea shift mm. in in uh, culture, if you like, uh, within executive government uh, that they've been able to support and become part of of this uh, new process. Um, which quite clearly is entirely designed to principally make information available, mm. uh, but to do so in a way that's consistent with requirements of the Privacy Act and, and so on. Mm. And I think a key aspect of, of this uh, has been that data linkage systems, as were developed in Western Australia, um, starting in the you know, mid-90s and, and even earlier with various sort of uh, more restricted areas of data linkage, uh, have demonstrated that it's possible now to do a large body of very important work uh, using anonymous information. Mm-hmm. So how does this like Commonwealth-level act affect the state-level data collections? Yes, so there is no direct effect because the, that Commonwealth legislation does not have mm-hmm. jurisdiction over uh, the information collected for example, by the State Health Department. So there is no immediate effect. Where it will have an an impact is where researchers um, and possibly even researchers inside the State Health Department as well as in our universities wish to combine, Mm. as they should often do, uh, information that is held at state level with information that is held at Commonwealth level. It's the only way you can get a complete picture of how the health system is performing. Mm. Uh, because of our constitutional arrangements, we do have this somewhat uh, un- yeah, unusual and uh, in the past, I would say, unhelpful mm. uh, set of arrangements where we have state governments running hospitals and cancer registries and um, uh, information about childbirth and so forth. Uh, and then we have the Commonwealth Health Department, which is um, involved in receiving the information from all the, uh, the, the the insurance claims under Medicare and the pharmaceutical benefits scheme and the nursing home aged care subsidy uh, uh, scheme. How on earth can you possibly know what people's journeys through the health system look like without joining all that together? Yeah. Um, I just hope that uh, this DAT Act and the way that it is eventually um, implemented uh, is a positive step towards uh, uh, that process. It wasn't that we couldn't do it before because we did do it back in 2007 to 2012. But I think this sort of symbolises a, a change in culture as well. As you say, this is a principally about how can we do this mm. rather than all the things that say we can't do it. Mm. It sort of strikes me that they're almost trying to achieve the aims that I think they were intending when they released those records back in 2016 Yes, to the public. I think they're trying to do it in a way where they're not legally exposed, basically. They're saying, right, we need to obviously have a few more steps 
in between releasing the data and someone receiving it that we need to know those those people are receiving it under certain conditions and they agree to those conditions i think that's right and and it is very important because um one of the issues for senior um government bureaucrats and you know i've been one myself <laughs> in the <laughs> distant past um yeah one, one of the issues is that it's very difficult to keep oneself away from uh, a defensive style of administration and particularly so in this modern era where um, the, the public service is so closely aligned with um, the political realities of, of, of the day uh, you know the, the the separation between the executive arms of government uh, the executive arm with the uh, legislature um, is even less obvious today than, than it was uh, in the past. And so there is a very strong political dimension to everything that happens uh, in the world of health departments. Mm-hmm. Um, and people who are in senior levels of health departments um, soon find a lot of discomfort uh, if the minister is displeased because there's a controversy on uh, in the news media that they consider their head of department to be um, responsible for. Uh, so given that reality, um, I think this system does have that potential to give comfort to the senior bureaucrats that uh, they don't have to, in a sense, watch their backs as much. Um, and while perhaps you might argue that that's you know something that shouldn't really be necessary because they should all be working for the public good, uh, we're all human, um, and these people, you know, they have families to look after and so forth, and they don't necessarily want to lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that's a very important aspect of the way that this uh, DAT Act could could uh, work out if, it, if it's implemented well. Mm. I might say that uh, although I have concerns about uh, how elaborate and detailed it is, and I, I can see a lot of paperwork yep. going on uh, w- with this, and, and that worries me. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, uh, from my 40 or so years of, of working in this area, I come away with the impression that what's important in whether a system is actually effective or not is not actually the detail of the legislative framework uh, and the steps, the hoops you have to jump through from a technical sense. It's the quality of the people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The people make the difference. So if you have great leadership, uh, people who understand that, you know, the way to administer the law is to always do only what the law requires and and not have what we call regulatory drift where we go beyond that just to shore things up even more than what the parliament has said we have to do Um, and people who are cooperative and do not fear the truth about the health system uh, they welcome research that is going to provide uh, ways of improving the system by identifying problems and mm-hmm. and they welcome that that sort of leadership in government is what's going to make the dat act uh, effective or not now, do you have any broad ideas on how we achieve that utopian 
situation. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had a magic wand, I must say. Uh, Well, two things, two very practical things. First of all, um, I do think that uh, performance appraisal of senior bureaucrats really should pay more attention to this question of the effective use of the information collected by their departments uh, so that they get acknowledged and rewarded Mm -hmm. for the effective use of their information rather than the only thing that is a consideration for them as a person is how can I avoid getting into trouble (laughs) through information being used? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And somehow we have to change uh, the uh, performance appraisal systems for senior bureaucrats so that it actually is a positive from their point of view and a motivation uh, to uh, make information available. So I think that's one thing. The other thing that uh, I feel uh, is very, very helpful is to break down the barriers um, between academia and uh, government administration Um, And one of the important ways that can be done is through encouraging staff exchange and mixed careers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I do offer myself as an example of someone who had a mixed career. And there were a number of people who came through as my peers during my career that also had mixed careers. I think of people like Michael Hobbs, Fiona Stanley, Bruce Armstrong, Mm -hmm. Ian Rouse, Uh, We were a group of people who worked at the health department uh, at state level at Mm -hmm. certain times in our careers and at other times we worked in the university. And I think that that's a very, very positive career track that we should strongly encourage both within our universities and also within our government departments. I think in New South Wales they actually have a a formal arrangement because they embed sort of um, postgraduate you know, research students in government departments. Well, that's great. And they fund their research. Uh, That's really great. And hopefully that can sort of extend over time into the more senior levels Mm. uh, where, you know, power and decision-making is is really concentrated as well. Yeah. I think that's really interesting uh, because I I myself have done a practicum at the Department of Health, which was really good. Um, But I think a lot of... Uh, younger mm. researchers steer clear of that as they feel the only pathway into academics is to be at a university doing research with the university, whereas there's actually so many different areas um, and like job careers where you do research principles, even though it might not be your job title. Mm-hmm. But I, I think a lot of younger people do steer clear of that mm. and don't kind of branch out into the mixed areas. Yeah. 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 Well, that's interesting. I'm yeah. I'm um, I know that a little dismayed to hear that, to be, to be honest. Yeah, 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 yeah I've, I've been I, warned I of like not, yeah. not to go to the <laughs> Department of Health. I'm like, yeah, whatever, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's maybe the the bureaucracy mm. generally that there's there's a sort of a bad perception of or, you know, there's obviously a lot of people who do go from academia into, into the public service. Mm. And yes. then obviously some come back again, some stay there. Um, but yeah, I think I, I've had I've certainly seen that attitude amongst some academics where yeah. they're like, "Oh, that yes. person couldn't hack academia, so they yeah, ended up in the health department." department. <laughs> right, Just so not true, <laughs> so not true. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, 
that sort of innate fear uh, and criticism of the other. Of the other. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. where I think, uh, you know, let's break down those sorts of barriers and stereotypes, and that's exactly what you're both suggesting, yeah. um, and uh, take a very encouraging view of people moving back and forward because otherwise we, we will have, uh, you know, the, the drawbridges and the moats uh, mm. Well and truly between uh, you know the, the empire of mm. academia and the <laughs> empire of government administration. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not what you want. <laughs> yeah, so I think we're pretty close to the end of our chat here, Darcy. Um, there was just one more thing I was going to get you to comment on because you brought my attention to a, to an yeah. analogy um, when we were preparing for this episode, um, and you said that an effective health information system is like a three legged stool. Did you want to talk us through that? <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, I guess this was uh, uh, an analogy uh, that uh, I, I came to uh, sort of appreciate my, myself just from observing how things worked. And, and that is uh, I came to the conclusion that for a health information system, uh, including uh, you know, a data linkage system, uh, to be effective, it really does require three essential pillars. And in that sense, it's like a three-legged stool because it, you only miss one of those pillars and the thing is just going to fall <laughs> over. It stands on all three and it needs all of them as essential aspects of what's going on. So the, the first pillar, uh, which we have you know, discussed uh, at some length uh, today, uh, is security uh, of the data uh, to pr make sure that we do honour, observe the requirements for privacy and confidentiality and, and, and so on. And we make sure that if we're using anonymous data, that uh, we do pass the moderate steps test. And I think increasingly industry standards are going to become important in deciding when we have passed that point of where anonymization has occurred. For example, secure enclaves and things like that are probably going to become an industry standard. So that's the first leg of the stool. The, the next one, though, which uh, historically I think tended to be overlooked, but uh, as our discussion has revealed, perhaps we have some reason for optimism that uh, this uh, leg of the stool is getting a bit more attention now, and that is research functionality. Um, and one of the most important aspects of research functionality, because after all, that's what the systems are <laughs> primarily there to yeah. do is to enable research, <laughs> is timeliness. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, one of the things I used to say when uh, I was intimately involved in all of this is that a data linkage system that doesn't run on time is no data linkage system at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that still applies uh, t today, that uh, it's no good saying that, yes, you know, we can make the data available uh, when actually by the time it's available, uh, the grant uh, has already yeah. Yeah. <laughs> run it's through gone. its period <laughs> and people don't have the money to do the research anymore. Yeah. Uh, so research functionality is just absolutely essential. And the third one, which uh, perhaps we haven't focused on so much to, uh, today, so uh, it's important I mention it now, uh, is to make sure that we have a high level of community participation in our governance structure. You know, the thought that needs to be given to the overarching um, policy setting governance of these uh, systems. And what I'm convinced about is that you must bring groups like consumer advocates along with you with all of this. 
both for the purpose of transparency. Um, so there can never be a suggestion that things are being done behind closed doors, which just has a terrible negative impact on the whole thing, regardless of whether you're doing the right thing or not. Uh, but also because it's the right thing to do. And my experience has been that by involving consumer and community interests in the governance of these systems, they ultimately become your strongest allies and advocates. Because as long as people are doing the right things, and I believe that researchers almost universally do have the right ethics and the right objectives in mind, um, they will see the public good in that mm. and they will become um, your spokespeople mm. when criticisms and problems do arise. Yeah. So I, th I think the role that consumers mm. and consumer advocates play is that they help you see where the gaps are and where the yes. imperfections are so that you can address that. So if you want to fix a problem, go to the person who dislikes it the most and you know, you're, you're likely to get the feedback you're looking for rather than putting it in front of a lot of people that are on your side and mm -hmm. trying to... Because you know, they're also more likely to say, how does this affect me? Like, yeah. what's going to happen to me because of this? Whereas, like, as researchers, we're more of a third party yeah. looking into it and we need that, that first-person perspective. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. yeah. You're both absolutely right. And in particular... Um, the independence of consumer input is absolutely essential. Mm. Uh, the UWA Department of uh, School of uh, Population Global Health was the first research organisation in Australia to actually appoint a consumer advocate. But the way it was done was that the appointment was not made by the university. It was made by the Consumers Health Council mm -hmm. of Western Australia. And uh, as head of department at the time, uh, I would say to uh, the uh, the incumbent, who for most of those years was uh, a very effective advocate by the name of uh, Ms. Anne McKenzie, I used to say to Anne, you are no use to this school whatsoever uh, unless you are our conscience and you are casting a critical eye over things. And, you know, please don't agree with me. <laughs> please tell me the different points of view that I need to consider mm. uh, in order to raise the level of, of ethics mm -hmm. uh, in the way that we are doing things uh, in this school. Yeah. And, yeah, just a footnote there, Anne's obviously gone on to found, I think it was the community, community, community and Consumer Health Research Network, which might be called something else now, but it was it went from being based at our school to based at all the universities in Western Australia. Another example yeah. of Western Australia leading the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think they're actually housed at Telethon Kids Institute mm. or the Perth yes. Children's Hospital now. Yes. Um, but yeah, yeah, just a little footnote there. <laughs> yeah, excellent. So it's all good right. to be a consumer advocate. <laughs> yeah, it's good to definitely involve them. Yeah. Um, yeah, did you, did you have anything else you wanted to cover, Darcy, before we finished up? No, I don't think so. I think we've... No. Uh, We've uh, covered it very well. Yeah. I hope it's oh. okay from your point of view. Yes, yeah, it sounded great. Yeah. Thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. And that was our conversation with Emeritus Professor Darcy Holman. I feel like 
my brain's just exploded. (laughs) (laughs) There was so much interesting information in that conversation and uh, it's particularly relevant to both of us considering we both use linked data. So to understand the history of how it came to be where it is now uh, and the the legal side of it was very interesting. Yeah, I I think... Obviously, Darcy has a lot of technical knowledge in the area, but I think he was able to convey that really in an easy way to understand. Yeah, um, and and just basically explain to us why we're allowed to use the data that we've been using. You know, why people thought it was a good idea, mm. the government thought it was a good idea, and I think as researchers, it's it's probably important to know why we can use that data. And I think a lot of people tend to just accept it, as mm. in when they apply for linked data, they go, oh, well, hey, we've got a data set now, let's just do our thing and answer our questions. But to understand why we can actually have that data and use mm. it to answer the research questions, I feel it adds an extra dimension to uh, the the passion behind the research that you do. Yep. Um, so I guess one of the things that I constantly try and uh, remind myself is that our data are people mm-hmm. and those people have feelings and uh, are alive or have families or and have all of this other information that we don't understand. So mm-hmm. by having that side of things and then the legal reasons as to why we can have that data, the kind of c- combination mm. really gives an important perspective yeah. to our data. Uh, yeah, that's it. I think it's sort of... That that conversation you just heard makes a clear case for why the data are helpful Mm -hmm. and how they can help everybody, you know, as a society, but also the, I guess, the um, care that we need to take and and why we need to be careful and and how we use them. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. We do need to be careful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, the steps that we need to take to make sure that they're not used improperly or, Mm, you know, and mm -hmm. as Darcy said, Almost universally, people involved in this type of research and are in there for you know pretty good reasons usually, and and you know they're never going to. We want to be helpful. Yeah, they're yeah. not. They're not going to be maliciously taking advantage of no. people's data. You know, no, they're trying to answer some serious questions and try and help people out. So, yeah. Anyway, it was a, a really fascinating. Yeah, chat. definitely. Um, so yeah, good. it's been a, been a few months. In the making, I yes. think I got in touch with Darcy. Maybe <laughs> it was actually maybe late last year, twenty twenty one, and we kind of discussed the possibility of uh, talking about this topic. And he said, "Right, that's it. I'm going to update the work I did ten years ago yeah. to see if anything's changed." And that's how we uh, came to where we are now. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is. I think been a, a very good thing. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So we hope everybody's enjoyed uh, the conversation. Um, if people want to get in touch and let us know what one way or the other, how do they do that, Courtney? You can tweet us at Health Means What. Uh, we'd love to see some conversations on there. You can also email email us meaningofhealth at outlook.com. And you can also contact us on Facebook. Um, if you look up the meaning of health on there, you'll find us. Uh, so multiple ways to contact us. Please do. We'd love to hear your thoughts and comments. And if you have any uh, people you'd like to have on this podcast, let us know. We are 
all ears. Yeah. And we do have some emails we need to answer as well. I, I forwarded them to you, uh, your okay. personal email just before. So we do, we have some people, which okay. is really exciting. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, I look forward to checking out, yep. <laughs> seeing what feedback we're getting. Yep. Um, yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you. And we'll be back with you soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.